Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Um, I make this plea at the start of every podcast that I host, but hey, don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, especially if you find this information helpful. That will help others to find us as well. So we would really appreciate that. Um, In today's show, we're actually going to spend two segments talking about the regular decision Uh, trends that we're seeing this year and then overall admissions trends that we're seeing in 2022. Um, But before we get to that, we're going to talk about making the choice to live off campus. And joining me for that is my colleague, Beth Feinberg-Keenan, who's a former financial aid officer at Northeastern. Hi, Beth. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, So living off campus Um, This is a decision that some students do find that they're making usually after freshman year, right? A lot of schools, they want you to live on campus freshman year. Um, But a lot of times students will move off campus after that. And so one of my first questions for you is, as a mom who is currently working with her own child on figuring out what the costs are going to look like for next year, um, he'll be living in the dorm. He's only going to be a freshman. Um, Do colleges build in the costs, housing costs for students who are living off campus when they um, estimate what they think you're going to be paying? They do, Beth. So typically the colleges have a couple different, what we call those cost of attendances or budgets that they put together. So they have one that you've seen this year for students who live on campus. And then they have one for students who live off campus. And then they have a third one for typically students who might live at home and commute. But for those students who live off campus, they, what I have often found is that the room and board can port component of that budget is very similar to what they build in for on-campus housing. Right. So if they build in, we'll say $10,000 or $15,000 or whatever that is, whatever that dollar amount is, I would assume that's going to be comparable for off-campus. As you prepare um, and explore that option of off-campus housing, that's a, that's a great question to have your son ask the financial aid office. Like, what do you build in for off-campus housing? Right. So when it's time for him to go look for an apartment, it's good to have that, you know, that number in mind of what they're building in. And when they're building an off-campus housing, remember that's everything. That number that they're building in is for rent, for utilities, for food, for, you know, for anything that they're going to have off-campus related to that, that, that apartment that they're renting. So that's great advice. Um, I'm curious if there, you know, of good places to go to just kind of get an idea for rents in the area. I mean, I guess I'm thinking just, you probably go online, but maybe (laughs) there are some other resources that you know of that um, would be good places to go. So the first place that I'd often suggest a student looks is like, look to see if the school has some type of commuter service um, or off-campus housing office. When I was at Northeastern, that's what we had. And it was funny because before, you know, when I was preparing for this segment, I was like, let me... uh, go out and look to see if they still have that. And yes, Northeastern still has it on, you know, that office and they have a website that's full of so much information from everything of like apartment listings. So there might even be apartment listings out there. Individuals who are looking for roommates, maybe they're staying where they are and they're losing a roommate. So they're looking for individuals to take on, you know, that, that space that's being vacated by somebody who's not continuing to live with those individuals. But you're right, Beth, you can look online. Um, I always think of Craigslist, like that's the thing that comes to me. That's what came to my (laughs) mind too, actually. (laughs) Um, There's apartments.com, there's Zillow has a place that, you know, for rents, because depending on where the student's going to school, we might not think of apartments just as like traditional like apartments or some students might be renting houses. You might have four or five students, six or seven students who decide to say, hey, we're going to actually rent a house together. So you might be able to use some of those resources beyond just like, you know, your Craigslist website. Got it. That makes sense. And then when um, what are some questions that students or parents or both should be asking when they're thinking about 
um, you know, the costs. Well, I think the biggest question they have to ask is like, what's included with the cost? Like when you see that rent, does it cover anything beyond that rent? Is it just the, you know, is it just the space? Um, how many kids can live or how many, you know, how many students can live in that space? You know, I think back, I have a cousin who went to Berkeley and she moved off campus in her upper class years. It was a two bedroom place, but there were four of them living there. So while you think sometimes like you want to move off campus because you want to have your own bedroom and not share, that might not be economical. So for her, it was two students in one room and she and another student in another room. But if you have a two bedroom, is every two bedroom going to allow four students living in that, you know, in that apartment? Right, right. Um, so, so those are some of the big questions. Well, and another one that comes to mind is you're in school typically from maybe mid to late August until, you know, late April, mid-May. What about those other months, right? So is that something else that you encourage people to ask about? So you want to think about like how long that lease is for. But I think that's something that, you know, when you're signing that lease, you want to know, is it for the school year? But again, if it's for the school year, that if it's end of April and maybe even like May, like what if your classes don't end or for seniors who are graduating and they have to be there for an extra week? Like the students have to move out early, maybe a week early before their lease ends. And where are they going to go? And if they're living, are they going to come back to that place, you know, in subsequent years and where can they store their uh, belongings? Are right. you going to be bringing your belongings back and forth um, with you year to year? Um, and if you're, if you're doing a year long lease, do you have the ability to sublet? Because some landlords are like, no, it's going to be in the lease that no subletters are required. So if you're not planning to stay over the summer, is that three months, maybe four months, maybe even longer of rent that you're willing to shell out for times when you won't necessarily be residing in that apartment? Yeah, yeah, that's a particularly tricky one, I think. Um, and then you mentioned already the question of roommates, right? Are you hoping to live alone or are you going to need to have roommates? And, you know, what are some things to think about from that perspective? There's so many things to think about from that perspective. You know, I think it's such an exciting time for college students to be able to be moving off campus and to move into their own apartment. But I remember so fondly, like a student that I was working with at Northeastern when I, when I was there, and he came to me and he was so excited that he was going to be moving off campus. Well, when I found out what he was going to be paying for rent, I wasn't as excited for him. <laughs> yeah. He was telling me rent was $2,200 a month. And this was just for him. And yeah. I was like, wow. So that's why if you're looking at rents that high, it is more economical to have a roommate or two or three, uh, depending on how big your place is. But there's so many things that families need to consider when they have roommate situations. Think about it with your own son. He has little to no credit. Yep. And if he's getting into a roommate situation with two other friends with three other friends. I assume they're all in a similar situation. And in some communities, yes, you have college towns and they're the bread and butter of that community. And you have mostly apartments that are rented to students, but they may need a co-signer. So are you as a parent willing to co-sign and are you going to be the only co-signer? Are all of the parents required to co-sign? That's a big one, right? (laughs) Are they all required to co-sign for their children? Because what happens if somebody's late on their rent? Um, Who's responsible? Typically the co-signer. And Beth, I'm sure that you don't want to be necessarily responsible if one of Jack's friends doesn't come through on the rent. But other things that you have to think about is like, who's on the lease? Are all of the roommates on the lease like they're all equally protected or is there one individual on the lease and they're renting from that other from that student? And what type of protections do they have? Like all of a sudden you have a roommate dispute and they say, hey, you're out of here. Yeah. You don't want to find out that you're that you have no place to live, like because you've had a roommate dispute and they say they have bad blood here in this apartment. They need to think about um, maybe a roommate agreement. And some of the like commuter services offices, like Northeastern, when I was looking, they had some structure and some guidelines out there for roommate agreements. Like, what are your expectations of each other? Um, how about of common spaces? Um, who's responsible for cleaning and how often? What are you willing to share? What are you? What is just yours? 
mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that's off limits and you don't want to necessarily share that with, you know, your roommates. So there's so many things to be thinking about beyond just that, the rent piece. And then lastly, the utilities, um, like whose name are the utilities going to be in Yeah, <laughs> and, and paying things. those expenses? You know, yeah. I know that we talk a lot about like on the, like the finance team, we really talk a lot about budgeting and having kind of like that safety account and having somewhere where everybody's putting their money into. So if a parent is saying, okay, we want to make sure that the rent is paid or the utility utilities are paid, then we know that there's an account that the money's being pulled from. And so all of a sudden, if one of the roommates isn't paying their share, we can do a little bit more planning, uh, but have those types of, you know, things in place where you know that maybe a day, like a couple of days before rent is due, that everyone's putting their money into that account, that, that, that separate account, or same thing with utilities, how, you know, setting up these things that everybody's responsible for putting their money and their share into those accounts. You know, as you are talking about this, I'm thinking back to my own experiences renting off campus with friends. And I don't remember how we did any of that. I do remember someone coming to me for a check for the phone bill. I remember that. But, you know, I think I actually just paid my landlord directly my share, I believe. So but it's it's interesting things to think about um, for sure. Um, I think you mentioned there a few things about parents, right? Like, am I co-signing? What does that look like? Any other responsibilities that parents need to be aware of if their student moves off campus? Well, you know, I often, you know, think about with parents, I mean, having, you know, knowing that number one, if they're late on the rent, but also if there's any type of damages to the apartment, Mm -hmm. Um, parents can be responsible for damages. If the security deposit isn't paying, you know, isn't enough to cover those damages that you could be on the hook for um, some additional monies. Another conversation that you may want to have with your children, if they're uh, thinking of living off campus is food. That's so big. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, students, when they're on campus, they have a meal plan. So if they're going to be moving off campus, are you going to buy them a small meal plan where they can eat on campus when they're maybe, maybe they're there for lunch or whatever time of day that they're there for. But if they're buying food, okay, you have an expectation to cook. And that's the food that we're giving you money for that we also don't want to see that you're ordering out and eating out every single meal because you have additional responsibilities that you have to plan for living off campus, getting to and from the school, um, considering planning your meals. Um, are you having that, you know, extra money if that's going to be that you're going to be eating off campus because you're not, you don't have time to, you know, pack a meal or you don't have time that, that you run out of your meals on the, on the college campus that day. Um, the other thing that I think that's important for parents to think about is making sure their students have renters insurance. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that. So good point. So what, you know, why do you recommend that? Because you never know what's going to (laughs) happen. And it's so affordable. Renter's insurance might be maybe eight to $10 a month. One of my colleagues had a son at uh, UVM and she shared with me that, you know, they had to pay up front, but it was a hundred dollars. So a hundred dollars is better than finding out that, there has been a fire or there's been water damage. Um, even if it's just in your, you know, student's bedroom or common space, but that's going to protect their belongings. If your student is thinking about bringing anything expensive to campus, you might also want to inquire about getting a rider. Um, so an additional coverage on that expensive item or items that they're bringing, that's going to protect those specific items that they have in their dorm. Do you mean like a, like a computer or something like that or... Yeah, computer or like there's, I was going to say, young young uh, females who are going to school and maybe bringing an expensive piece of jewelry mm-hmm. um, that they might have, like maybe like a family like piece of jewelry that, you know, they've always had and they bring it to school because they want to wear it at like, events. So it could be it could be anything like that. Um, expensive, like audio visual equipment that they might have, depending on what you know their major is. Right. Like, or gaming systems for some Mm -hmm. kids. Yes. Um, All right. Last, lastly, any final thoughts that you would want people to think about as they are, or that you'd like to leave us with about living off campus? You know, the other things that I want, you know, students to think about is cars. (laughs) So if they plan to have a car, um, 
I didn't live off campus when I was an undergrad, but I lived off campus when I was in grad school. And I remember calling my parents at one point and saying, I'm bringing my car home because I can't stand to shovel my car another time. <laughs> but I had to find a parking space because it was in Boston. Yep. So that took time because parking spaces might not come with the apartments. And then also laundry is something else to think about because oh, there yeah. might be laundry in the basement of your dorm, but is there laundry in your apartment? Is there laundry in your unit or do you have to schlep it somewhere else? So it's, there's a lot of little things to think about that one might not, you know, consider of how those might impact their, you know, experience living off campus. Yes, absolutely. Great advice. Good points. Um, As always, thanks so much, Beth, for joining. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. Have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Well, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're talking about trends that we saw in both regular decision and just overall for uh, 2022. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking about 2002 admissions cycle, primarily regular decision, but quite honestly, it's kind of difficult to talk about that without talking about some of the overall trends. And I'm hoping this isn't a complete rehash of the segment that Ian did with a couple of our colleagues a little bit earlier in the year where they were talking about sort of the early trends that they saw. And now we're here to reflect a little bit more. Note to all of you who are listening, we, we are taping this on um, May 4th and it's gonna air on May 12th, so there's always data coming in. Uh, we're giving you what we know to the best of our knowledge as of today, and you know we may reflect on this a little bit more in a future segment. But joining me for this today are my two colleagues, um, Zaragoza Guerra, who's a former admissions officer from Caltech, MIT, and the Boston Conservatory, and Karen Spencer, who is a former admissions officer at both Georgetown and Franklin and Marshall. So hi, guys. Welcome. Hi, Beth. Very glad to be here. Yeah, psyched to have you here. Uh, All right. Let's kind of jump in a little bit. Um, I think, well... I will start simply by saying that for me, regular decision, I wasn't super surprised by a lot of the decisions I saw, but I would love to hear from both of you on kind of your thoughts about the regular decision acceptances and denials that you were seeing. And maybe um, Zaragoza, if you want to start, um, I'll I'll let you kick us off. Sure. You know, I think regular decision was probably a bit tough uh, for for a lot of students, um, not just my students, but talking to colleagues uh, across uh, the board here at, at College Coach. Um, there seems to have been pretty much, uh, you know, a lot of dashed hopes. <laughs> um, I think um, 
those students who who did opt for early decision, let's say over something like an uh, an early excuse me, regular decision over something like, let's say, an early decision two, I think found themselves um, sometimes left out of of some of their reach schools and sometimes even some out of some of their possible schools. So I, I think, you know, for me, what I'm seeing is that the, the trend seems to be that students are applying a little bit earlier and, and that colleges and universities are um, – you know, essentially giving the advantage pretty much to those early applicants, or, or at least particularly to early decision applicants over the regular decision pool. Right. Okay. Karen, I'm just curious if, you know, I had, I saw some slightly different things, but I'd be curious about your, your take on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, part of me doesn't want to admit this because I've been doing this long enough that I shouldn't ever be surprised by decisions, but I keep being a little like dumbfounded by like, how hard some of these schools keep being. Um, and again, you'd think I would, after 17 years of doing this, would this wouldn't phase me, but it still phases me. Um, I think if I saw anything a little quirky, and I, and I think my colleagues maybe didn't agree with me. So again, this might be more my pull, or maybe I'm just not describing it correctly. I did find that um, schools where I would have thought that were tougher to get into, I would seeing some of my kids getting into those schools and not kind of the very next tier down, they were getting kind of waitlisted at, um, seemed to me, at least in my cohort, a slightly unusual trend, not totally unusual again. And when you're talking about super selective, it's always a crapshoot. So like going back to why should you be surprised? These are really selective schools. You shouldn't be surprised. That's, that's a fair statement. Um, but some, some students, again, getting into schools that I was like, really? Yeah, you got in there, but you didn't get in over here like that. I found a little bit more of that going on. Um, and I think that uh, plays to a, a lot of different issues, some of which I'm not privy to. I try not to have conjecture be about why somebody got into someplace and didn't get in someplace else. I think I like to avoid that. Um, but I did see a little bit of that trend going on at, at, at regular that I in, in a way that I haven't seen in the past, I think. Yeah, I think the reason to kind of avoid that is what we all know, which is that every institution has different institutional priorities and that at the end of the day, that is where the decisions are made, not even on the student. It is certainly the student sitting in front of them, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual school's institutional priorities, and we're not privy to those. And so not being privy to those means that we will be sometimes surprised. I, you know, if I could pick up one overall trend that I saw that I think speaks to what both of you are talking about, it's that I believe we are seeing more and more schools employ um, enrollment management techniques to really be sure that the students they are admitting are going to come and to avoid making too many offers of admissions to students who maybe see them as a nice option if these other three schools don't come through. And I think that can be where some kids really get into trouble. If they're not strategic enough, then they don't get their, they shoot for too many extreme reaches. Then they don't get the just right options. And in some cases don't get the schools where they were likely to get admitted because so many more of those schools are sort of getting wise to the idea that, you know, and, and this has been happening for a long time, but it really feels super impactful in the past two years where, you know, a school that always would have taken a student with this profile is suddenly saying, no way, you know, I don't think you're going to come. So until, and you can visit and you can, you know, be in our early action pool, but if you really want to be here, you would have chosen early decision. And if we are not convinced, we're going to at best waitlist you. And at worst, we're going to deny you. And Here's the the terrible part. It's working for them. You know, I, I would point to Tulane as a really great example of a school that used to take all of the super qualified students who applied that I worked with. And now, um, you know, many of those students, they're not necessarily willing to commit an early decision to Tulane, but they will maybe get it in there in time for early action. And I see those kids getting deferred and frequently denied because the kids who really want to be there are committing themselves and Tulane is realizing they don't have to take all of those other kids. So I'm curious if you are seeing 
you know, we've been looking at the stats for individual schools, and I wonder if there are any of those stats that particularly stand out for you, for either of you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree. I, I think that, um, you know, even when you're just looking at the difference between early early decision and, and regular decision, you know, there seems to be a, a huge difference and a huge gap between uh, for a lot of schools. And um, and I think the gap is even higher, perhaps, for those schools that have early decision versus early action. Um, I think there has been a lot of chaos in the past two years. And as a consequence, colleges and universities no longer have those predictors for who's going to enroll. So their enrollment numbers um, must have seemed to be chaotic for for a while. And um, one of the few uh, areas where they can predict, um, you know, given uh, where we are in in this new world post-COVID would be early early decision. I mean, that's a pretty big predictor. Right. (laughs) You're admitting a student, they're definitely going to come. That secures your overall enrollment numbers a lot more than um, taking a chance on someone early action or, or or regular decision. And I think too, I think it's always important for people. And I know we've said this on this radio show before, but you know that the colleges are still businesses and with very small margins for error here, right? Like, you know, I always say a college's job is is many things, but one of which the admissions person's job is to put heads on beds. Right. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to over enroll because then you make national media for putting, you know, students in hotels and you get terrible publicity for that. You under enroll and you have, you know, the president in your office saying, I got to pay the light bill, so to speak. Right. And you didn't <laughs> we don't have enough money coming in to pay the light bill. Right. So it's a, it's a very small margin for error. Right. Which is why wait lists are so huge as well. Right. Because you need that buffer to, to figure out, you know, that. So I do think. You know, that and with I think the predictability with the last two years really kind of going out the window of, you know, at Georgetown for all those years, you know, we kind of knew if we admitted this, this many enrolled and this is how this worked. And that pattern was steady for many, many colleges for many, many years until COVID in the last two years, all that predictability went away. Right. So colleges have to find that really small line of meeting the budget and that over enrolling with now a a target that is constantly in motion. Um, And I so, again, I don't envy um, deans of admission or people in that office, because that's become incredibly difficult to do. So again, you know, early decision is, you know, that's your best bet. And then also at regular decision, I would say if I saw something else, students getting admitted at regular decision at really particularly selective colleges had done something different than their peers. Um, they had a really interesting activity that they had developed and grown into something really unique and interesting, or it wasn't just, oh, I have the right test and I have the right grades. Well, again, that was problematic anyway, because so does everybody else in this applicant pool. So I think at regular decision, if that's the route you're going to go, you have to think, how am I different in some exceptional way than all of these other students here? Because that's really how you're getting in at regular decision at a selective college at this point. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway for me um, this year, which builds on my takeaway from last year, is that, and it's a dirty thing that people don't like to think about. It's not a dirty thing, but people, some people see it as a dirty thing. And that is that how important strategy is. Um, you know, I, we are talking a lot about early decision, and, and I do think there are uh, there are options for students who, for a variety of reasons, primarily financial, can't do early decision because you're committing and you don't know what kind of package you're going to get. And, you know, it just, you can't compare financial aid packages. So there's a lot of reasons why early decision is not going to be a good choice for plenty of families out there. But if you, you know, I I think of a student um, who I know, who I didn't work with, um, but she was really interested in two schools Um, They both had both early action and early decision. And I really encouraged her mom to to encourage her to pick one. And because I knew that if she went to early decision to one of the two, she really did have a really good chance of getting in. But if she went early action for both, I was concerned about what would happen. And mom's take, totally appropriate, by the way, um, was she really isn't ready to make the choice. She loves them equally. 
And so I said, okay, well, just be aware that the answer here could be either you pick one and get one or you pick neither and you get neither. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened. The student was deferred in early action at both schools and ultimately did not get into either one. And I really do feel like the decision would have been different. And so it doesn't feel good to, to encourage something like that, but you know, I do think those are important questions to consider. And maybe the answer is the same. No, I really just want to choose from, I want to have a choice. I get it. But if it comes down to two schools, my encouragement here, especially if one has early decision and you can go that route, would be to, to pick one and go with it. I would agree. I, I don't think it's a total loss for those students who might not necessarily be able to commit early decision or who, for financial circumstances, might not necessarily be able to pick a school. I think there's still a really great strategy in terms of um, really fleshing out those schools where they might apply early action and making sure that they've got plenty of those options, not just necessarily within their reaches, but also their possible set of schools. Um, You know, I think it it can be problematic mostly for those restrictive early action programs where uh, it inhibits you from being able to apply to to multiple schools. I I did have one student this, this past year um, who uh, wanted to apply early decision to his reaches, uh, to, to one particular reach. And we talked that it was probably not going to happen, but, you know, the alternative, um, and we made sure that he, the student really fleshed out their early action schools and, and, made, and, and as well as a really a, a, a great array of state schools that they could also apply to that they would have loved to have applied in. You know, this was, I was very happy at the end of the day because the student got into a lot of their schools. Um, so it, it, I think there, there are ways around it. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. It's all about strategy. What's going to work for one student is not going to work across the board. And it's hard to necessarily um, take someone else uh, going to your high school, take their strategy because they might have a completely different list of schools with a completely different set of rules with respect to their early admission policies. Yeah. yeah. What I was going to say too, I mean, two things that I will say real quick, just as one is state schools, if they have an early action or roll it, get that in early. Yes. I will say it's my first time I've ever had a student not get into Penn State that was qualified this year because they, for reasons I will not go into, forgot to apply before early action, thought they had, hadn't, had the wrong thing. It's a long story we won't go into. Penn, Pennsylvania resident qualified waitlisted uh, mm. because um, they didn't get their application in at the that November 1st deadline. So again, any of those large state institutions with an early action or a rolling, whether it's early is better, there's no, you have to do that, like that end of full stop. Um, and the only thing, other thing I will say about strategy, I think sometimes strategy gets misunderstood or misheard. Like, like my strategy is applied to all eight Ivies. Like that's not right. a strategy. Not a strategy. That's not what we're saying to you. So if you heard that come out of us, that's not what we are saying, right? <laughs> strategy is, you know, I always say like you need a doomsday strategy too, right? Like if this all falls apart, what is your plan, right? And I say that to all my students. I said, I don't hope this falls apart, but sometimes if you're, especially if you're reaching high, you have to have a plan for if this all goes south over here, which you can, because when you're applying to super selective colleges, these could all say, no, that's a, always on the table for that to happen. Hope is not a strategy, as we always like to say, right? So strategy is, if there's, what's our doomsday scenario? What are our safety schools? What are our other schools, right? So that that's also a strategy. It's not just crafting, you know, your best Dartmouth application. That's not a strategy. It's all these other things that go into it. I, I also think... When, when I'm working with students, there, there are times when I think, hey, there's a seismic shift happening <laughs> uh, based upon how their decisions turn out. And I would say that, you know, prior to this past two years, I, I probably might not necessarily have worried so much about regular decision or, or regular action. I think that a lot of students, um, really great students who might not necessarily have gotten into their reaches um, early, could have gotten in in regular, mm-hmm. but you're right. Uh, they do need some kind of strategy for making sure that those colleges that they're applying to regular or, or early know that they're interested. Oftentimes that early application is that indicator, at least you know for the past two years, that's what it's been. And so it's, it, it's very important that, that they be mindful of that because I, you know, I, 
as I said, you know, the past two years, um, there have been, I've, I've had a few students who didn't get into their reaches. So that's telling me, okay, relying on regular Regular decision is probably not going right. to be uh, a great strategy. You, you've got to start looking at some of those early options, whether it's early action, uh, you know, depending upon you know the set of schools that you're looking there, or or early decision. Yeah. So we need to go to a quick break, but I I want to make two points um, before we go. One is I have definitely started talking to my students about an early decision two option. That is not necessarily something that was part of my you know, general spiel to every student. But now, especially those who are reaching for the absolute stars, we're talking about having a reasonable early decision two option that you apply to regardless of what happens. As in, if you get deferred, you're still going ED2. You're not waiting to see. That's a whole, you know, that that is a good strategy. Whether you want to embrace that or not is a whole other question, but for another day. And I also want to say a pox on Harvard because their terrible early action policy means that you cannot apply by the early action deadline to your states, to state schools, to schools with special merit award programs, which is just appalling to me because what Harvard is saying is if you want to take this early action shot at us, then you need to give up every other great opportunity you could have out there. And they should be ashamed of themselves, truly, because even single choice early action at Stanford and uh, at Princeton and at Yale, they are still allowing you to apply to state programs and things like that. So we don't do a lot of calling out on this show because that's not what we're all about. But I really do think what Harvard is doing is egregious. They changed their language, um, and it's really bad. I don't like any of those single-choice early action programs, but that one in particular I really don't like. Anyway, on that lovely note, we're going to take a quick break and come right back and keep talking about this, so don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now... Back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are getting, well, I should say I am getting a little fired up. We're talking about uh, trends that we're seeing in 2022, some of them regular decisions, some of them overall. Uh, And here's a question I'm going to throw out to both of you, to my colleagues, Zaragoza and Karen. Do you think 2021, was that a fluke or is the ultra selectivity that we are starting to see or we started to see at some colleges is that here to stay? I I think it's here to stay at least for a while. Um, I think it wouldn't be in the kind of curve, the normal curve would not, you know, surprise me if, if eventually this levels out a bit. I think and as soon as we went test optional, where most schools went test optional, that just blew the lid off of all sorts of things, right? And, and in good and bad ways, right? I'm a big believer in test optional. I've worked at test optional schools. I like test optional but it does make predictability that much harder, both for admissions officers about, again, yield, like we just talked about, like who's actually going to come 
and who gets admitted, right? Because this, oh, this is, this complicates it. Um, and again, in, in a lot of good ways. So I'm not anti-test optional, but I think it also gave a lot of hope to students, sometimes false hope and sometimes legitimate hope, right? Um, I, I said when I worked at Franklin and Marshall, which was test optional 25 years ago even, so I always remind people test optional is not a new concept by any means. It's been around for a very long time, a lot of schools actually. Um, but that, you know, people would be like, oh, you're test optional, that gives me a good chance. And then I'd say, but I'm looking at your transcript and that's not that's not helping you, right? This is also right. a problem over here. This is not meant for you, friend. Um, you know, test optional is really great for those students who for literally every other measure is fantastic minus this one thing, right? And so I think the challenge there in 2021 and now 2022, and, I, you know, and long, as long as test optional is around at the majority of these schools, what I think we're going to see is all these students throwing their hat in the ring. And again, some of those people now do have a chance that wouldn't have otherwise, and a lot of them still have no business applying to these schools. And I think until those students who realize like this is still not, this was never going to be a chance for you regardless, start to understand that, I don't see this trend again going away because I, and I think it's important though when we talk about hyper-selectivity, it doesn't always mean that we're looking for different students our pool is just bigger, right? Yeah. Who we're looking for hasn't changed dramatically. We just have more to pick from, right? And so, you know, if if 50% is of, of new applicants and only another 10% of that huge pile are still more qualified, it didn't really get that much more competitive because these 90% of these new applicants were never competitive to begin with, right? right? So these were never on the table. It's just this sliver that was actually before was not competitive, it is now competitive. So I do think there's a lot of nuance to this that I think gets a little misunderstood. So it's not like some schools that were like, not that competitive now are hyper, we just have even more applicants, not all of whom are so well qualified, right? It's not, so I just think that's it's important to say, but I do think as long as test optional is around, I see this con considering continuing to be an issue. Yeah, more applicants to many of the same schools, I Correct. think, right? So one of the things we can see is that the number of students actually applying to college has gone down, but the ones who are applying are all applying to the same schools, right. and that's causing some problems. Yeah, I, I mean, you can see that the number of students who, you know, there's actually a, a dip in, in overall college enrollment, and that's, you know, impacting those schools that happen to be a little less selective or a lot less selective, mm -hmm. you know, particularly community colleges, um, but a huge shift in, in applications to those um, uber selective schools. And I think, you know, I, I would, I would say this is here to stay for a while, just like, just like Karen. Um, I'd agree with that mostly because, you know, I've seen it anecdotally in, in my students in terms of the difficulty of, of getting into some schools that um, I thought they would have gotten into uh, years past. Um, I think probably that, you know, when, when things started shifting last year, and I think there was a big shift in last year's numbers versus um, previous years, there's always been a, a progression, slow progression to uh, higher selectivity with a lot of colleges, universities, but between 2020 and 2021, there was a jump, uh, a, a bigger jump than usual. And I think, you know, between last year and this year, it's gone back to that soft uh, rise in terms of selectivity. Um, so that that really does tell me that last year wasn't a fluke. Uh, this year is confirming that that's probably a trend and that's probably here to stay. Uh, much to Karen's point, it's more than likely because, you know, a lot of uh, test optional policies and um, I, d I don't necessarily see that um, going away immediately. I think there are going to be a lot of schools that figure they can do um, admissions with a test optional policy and like that particular policy and are more than likely going to keep it. Yeah. I, interestingly, of course, MIT has come out and said they're reinstating uh, testing. They think it's important. It's, it's a key component for them in their admissions process. And it will be very interesting to see how their numbers are impacted um, in terms of who's applying. Um, my guess is that it will be much more predictable for them. Um, they will cut out probably the people who were just throwing in an application just because. Um, but I, I don't think 
that lots of other schools are going to follow suit. And I think there's really good reasons why not to um, follow suit because I, like you, Karen, and I think you, Zaragoza, but correct me if I'm wrong, I like the idea of test optional. The biggest challenge really is helping a family understand or student understand that yes, I get what you were saying, not to rehash that, but just, you know, that test is not, has never been the only thing. It will never be the only thing. And if you are a student who isn't excelling at a very high level, it doesn't matter that we've eliminated that you didn't have great test scores. You're still not going to be competitive at some schools. And, you know, that doesn't change things. So I, I, I think they're there are going to be a lot of schools that are, you know, much like MIT. I think, you know, part of the reason they're doing that is because you know, they feel that math score really does impact um, a student's success. And they've, they've studied that. And that's probably one of the biggest factors, at least for them, uh, for student success there. And, and particularly because they're a, a specialty school, a tech school, a math and science uh, school where everyone has to do really well in math and science. Otherwise, you're not going to succeed. Everyone right. does a Bachelor of Science. So it might not necessarily pertain to many other schools. And, you know, for I, I think you're going to find that there are some schools, I was reading that Texas A&M did a study to find out, hey, has being optional negatively impacted our retention rates with students? No. It mm -hmm. hasn't. Uh, they've got the same retention rates that they had prior to being uh, test optional. And so for a school like that or, or many other schools that might not necessarily be so specialty oriented, I think they're probably going to stick with it. Yeah. yeah. I think, too, it's, it's also important to remember, and we talk about this a lot, though, is to remember we are talking about 50 to 100 schools here, right? Yes. Where totally. I went to undergrad at Valpo. I guarantee they're still thrilled to have your application right now, right? Even more thrilled than normal, probably, right? Because we're seeing this huge trend towards these top 100 schools, right? So I think if you're listening in today and your student wants to go to a school that has traditionally admitted 50% or more of their applicant pool, right? Like there's no reason for you to panic, right? Because I don't, this is, we're not talking about everybody here. We're talking about a very specific kind, you know, types of schools that were already pretty hyper-selective or just getting more hyper-selective. So and that goes back maybe a little bit to your strategy, you know, discussion we had, you know, before the break is that we need to start remembering that there are other schools out there and perhaps including them on our list, right? Um, and so because if these are just going to get more and more selective, we're going to need to be, our strategy needs to start by incorporating the many, many, many majority of schools that take more than 50% of their applicant pool, right? So it's not like, oh my gosh, my options just went out the window. It just means you're going to have to expand your options. And it, I think part of that is also just becoming more acquainted with uh, what schools might lie in some of these categories because the world has changed and there are going to be um, a lot of other schools that you might not necessarily have considered safeties before that you should do some research on. Um, a lot of those safe schools that were safeties 10 years ago are now probably not going to be safeties. Uh, and there are a lot of schools that were just rights or possibles five, 10 years ago that are now reaches. And, you know, oftentimes I'm having conversations with, with families, getting them up to speed on how the landscape has changed. I, I would say that, you know, there are now well over 20 schools with admit rates under 10%. That's crazy competitive. And so that means that, you know, schools that one might have thought of as safeties prior are probably now going to be moving to that possible category of that just right category. And there might be another set of schools that, that you're research, researching. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's, uh, there are going to be options. It's just a matter of changing one's mindset and, and, and knowing that the world has changed as to what those options are. Right. I mean, two thing, two schools I would throw out there. Colby, a small New England NESCAC school in Maine. Um, Northeastern, a large research university in Boston. Both acceptance rates 7% this year. 7% is insane. When I left Penn, the acceptance rate was somewhere between like hovering around 15% when I was doing admissions there. And we turned everyone away. So, you know, cut that in half. It's it is crazy. Well, in Northeastern, if you had a pulse when we started working here, nothing personal Northeastern, you could go to Northeastern. When we started yeah. here 17 years ago, were you breathing? You could go to Northeastern. I mean, that is right. how that works. And it is now, again, below 10%. So again, this is not the same school it was 
Right. I mean, it is the same school it was, it, but that number is not the same. It's a little fancier. They have nicer fancier. buildings and things and, and good programs. Um, very. I want to make one point and then we're, I can see that we're getting close to our time. And so I know we have a few other things we want to mention. I do want to really underscore, because I think it's super important, the idea that there are so many great schools out there. And I say this as a mother who recently went through this process with her own child, where we were focusing exclusively on public schools because two reasons. We couldn't, um, the private schools that were of interest, we would not have qualified for financial aid. He would have had to do early decision and we needed merit money. So basically we eliminated any school that early decision would have had to be an option for him to be competitive. Um, we really focused on public schools and we focused on public schools in some cases that offered merit or had a price point that we felt was doable. And he ended up with, he applied to eight schools, got accepted to eight schools. One school, he didn't get the campus he wanted, but he got in everywhere that he applied. Um, he got merit from half of the schools that he applied to. It was by all accounts my son's most importantly, a super successful process. And he's really excited with where he's going to end up. And big piece of that was kind of being realistic about our situation and being strategic every school he was in by the early deadline if they had one. Um, so the message is, this is all very doable. Um, he also really liked every school on his list. And I cannot Amen. stress that enough. All right, we have literally got one minute. Any final thoughts about this year before we uh, say goodbye? Research the schools in the middle part of your list and grow to like them, love them, because, you know, that could be a possible school. So uh, immerse yourself uh, in, in that part of the list, not just on your reaches. Yeah. Right. And go visit. Again, now that the world is opening up more and more, if you can get on a college campus, I, I haven't been able to say that emphatically for the last two years, and I can again, and that's, this has always <laughs> been a harping point with me. If you could get on a campus, be on a campus. Um, you know, Take the tour, the official tour. If there's an info session, that would, can be online. I could live with that. But you know, see the campus. Do you like where it's located? Do you like how big it is? Do you like the people here? Do you like the location? How long it took to get all those things are so important. And so I haven't been able to say that for two years. Now I can again. So go visit. Love it. I think it's great advice. I think strategy, strategy, strategy must be employed. Hope is not a strategy. I'm stealing that from you, Karen. Um, strategy is not I'm applying to a million schools. Strategy is I have a really nice, finely tuned list that I like. I like every school on it. And if I am in a position to do early decision, um, that I strongly consider it, um, depending on the schools you're applying to. Um, all right, very quickly, next week, I'm actually back. Yay! We're talking about asking for recommendation letters, um, options if you haven't really planned anything for your summer. Um, it's going to be mid-May. We still have some suggestions for you. And also the impact of rising interest rates on college finance and savings. Um, that might be something that is concerning you. Um, and if it is, we're going to be talking about that. Um, don't forget, we are here every Thursday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. No. 1 p.m. Pacific and 4 p.m. Eastern. Normally I read that. See what happens when I try to do it on the fly. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.